Previously, we've embraced this idea of progression comes by working up job roles, by going junior, senior, manager, and then whatever comes afterwards in that role. Now it's about embracing the unknown. Charlie Rogers is the founder of Master In Your Twenties, and with his community of multi-potentialites on LinkedIn, shares his thoughts on the future of work. Don't tell me that you want to make an impact in the world when really you want to save for a deposit for a house and make some money. Like, yeah, cool. If you want to do that, do that, yeah? Like, that's fine. But you can't have it all. When it came to finding talent, specifically for startups, they'd ask me for like certain traits. And I remember myself and my co-founder, like we'd sit like in evenings, smash out DMs to like these perfect people. We'd like build huge lists of them and just like copy paste, copy paste, like change the name each time, make it personal. And it just required a lot of like outreach in the beginning. You had to build momentum through people experiencing it. But we knew once they came in and touched one of our events, they'd have a great day. So we just had to get them over the line. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Extrospective Podcast with your host, Zach Villeneuve-Snell. First of all, thanks for sticking around and for hopefully listening to last week's episode, which was a bit of a recap of episodes 21 to 30. If you haven't checked that out, please go and do so. I try my best to kind of condense the best lessons from each episode into one episode, which is about 45 minutes to an hour long. And I'm hoping to do that every 10 episodes. Now, this week is episode 34, so I'm a bit of out of sync, but it's with Charlie Rogers. And I actually reached out to Charlie via LinkedIn after following him for quite a while on his commentary on the, on the world of work, the future of work, and what it's like to be an individual uh, who's kind of transitioning from teenagehood into adulthood into your 20s and exploring and navigating the world of work as it's ever evolving. And in this episode, we do talk about the importance of a squiggly career and embracing the future of work. But we talk about Charlie's initial foray into the business world, selling sweets at school. Uh, however cliched it may be, that was Charlie's sort of entry into the business world. Uh, why persistence and dedication is more important than talent. How you can apply the lessons from endurance sport to the world of work. What it's like to host an event. Uh, right in the aftermath of lockdown and try and bring people together and why writing a book can be really beneficial even if you don't actually publish it as a book you can turn it into a weekly newsletter which is exactly what Charlie has done and finally Charlie's commentary on what it means to be a multi-potentialite which is essentially an individual who has many different potential avenues for business and of their hobbies and is someone who enjoys multiple things and is trying to fuse those things together and I'm sure many of you listening alongside myself would probably consider themselves a multi-potentialite, even if we've never heard that term before. And so in this episode, Charlie goes into what it means to be a multi-potentialite and how he's living that out in his life and obviously providing commentary to all of his followers. So it's a really insightful episode, particularly hopefully for my audience listening. Uh, again, I know there's a broad range of people listening, but the majority of people, 60-70% are in the 18-30 to 30 age bracket. And so I think this podcast can be really beneficial as we navigate into the world of work or progress through our careers in our 20s. So without further ado, I'll introduce the podcast sponsor and then I'll introduce Charlie. So the podcast sponsor is of course Runner, which is the first of its kind, number one rated, fully automated running coaching service. And whether you are training for your first marathon, a faster 10k, or simply wanting to do couch to 5k, Runner has got all the plans available and actually ties in quite well with this week's guest, uh, Charlie, who is at a very high level with his running and now triathlon. Uh, and I'm sure you know, if he didn't have a specialized coach, he'd probably be using something like Runner. I've used Runner to great effect, and it's a fantastic tool to be able to uh, gradually build up mileage and know what sessions to do when and, and take the pressure off of planning all your own training, really. And you'll be joined by top, top level coaches for that support and guidance. 
including Olympic marathon runner Steph Davis and Commonwealth triathlete Beth Potter. And with code Zach, Z-A-K, you can get your first two weeks free by searching runner, R-U-N-N-A, in the app store. And let me know how you get on. But without further ado, welcome to the podcast, Charlie Rogers. Charlie Rogers, welcome to the Extrospective podcast. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing really well, Zach. Thank you for having me. So back in January, in an effort to sort of expand my network and get an idea of different individuals in in the space this sort of stage in 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 my life I took to LinkedIn fired off some random connections with mutuals and trying to see who's out there and you were you were one of them and your post particularly stood out to me because of your commentary on the future of work and your your writing on the intersection between all of our different passions and how we can combine them and kind of navigating that whole space which is obviously something that many of the listeners will a position that many of the listeners will find themselves in. It's a position that I find myself in trying to gain loads of experience and navigate this this evolving new world of AI technology and remote working and things. So yeah, I wanted to, to preface that as a, as a bit of a, an introduction as to how, how obviously we connected and, and why you're on the podcast today. But for those of you listening who, who don't know uh, who Charlie is, Charlie, would you like to introduce who you are? I appreciate that. Yeah. So my introduction normally, and this is kind of probably speaks to what your intro there was, is, hey, I'm Charlie, and I describe myself as doing a few things. So those few things are, I lead future of work consulting projects, so helping individuals redesign organizations for the future. I also coach business owners, particularly agency owners, on how to scale. And then thirdly, I also have a community of multi-potentialites, which are people like me, that when you ask what they do, they say many things. There's other people like me out there. And so I put them all together. I write a newsletter on it and then also have our first in-person event happening this month. Very exciting indeed. But all of them are overlinked by this idea of playing between the future of work, future of careers, right in the middle, because I believe that's what's the most important thing in the world is that we spend what is probably a third of our lives doing something meaningful and actually enjoying it, not hating it, because what more could you want from life? As a young person, that can often be quite daunting, can't it? As you transition from school and each next layer of life, you're refining your choices and being pressured to follow not only your passion, but also what's going to leave you not on the streets, right? Like you've got to find that that journey. And I think also you've been able to self-reflect along the way enough to to document that and then try and almost be a feedback loop so that people coming through that that journey, people as they're transitioning through can have a bit more of a, of a map to follow uh, although everyone's maps different you know a, a general kind of overview of what, what options are out there yeah um, but before we before we get into those those nitty-gritty topics as i'm sure we'll do later on take let's take it back let's take it back to the beginning charlie as a child what were you like as a kid what was your temperament sort of like back in the day who was i um i'd say probably quite a happy kid and one that was always seeking alternative solutions to problems as well. So I think that's probably been something that I've done for a long time. So when I say I started my first business at 19, that's the one I registered with Companies House, yeah? Like before that, I've always been entrepreneurial. So back when I was, what, 14, we had our own little like tuck shop. So we went and bought some stuff from the local Poundlands. And then because the, the place on the school campus where people would buy food from was like the other side of campus, that's like a 15 minute walk away, 20 minute walk away. We just sold stuff in our local house. And so we kind of made, I think, in a term, like three, 400 pounds over it, like pretty simply. And so until someone broke into the back of it and uh, stole the food that was in it, 
it was all good. It was all fun. And I think that for me, along with quite a few other experiences, just sort of built this entrepreneurial spark. And that's been with me from like an early age as well. So I like to always think outside the box, always think critically, always try and understand that there's not one perspective on things. There are often many. And so for me, if you ask me what my number one strength would be when I was younger, and I think that's still true now, is my ability to mold into any situation and to basically wear the mask of the person I need to be in that situation as well. Like right now, I'm kind of wearing my own mask, I guess. But if you put me in, hey, you need to go into corporate world, yeah, I'll put on a shirt. I'll, I'll, I'll wear the way I need to be. I'll, I'll be able to blend in, but also retain my personality. And I think that's something that I've been able to do throughout as well uh, my life so far. I think being able to remain the same at the core but have different layers on top that is more suitable for different environments is of course a, a skill so that you don't tread on people's toes or that you do all the right things and tick all the boxes of of when you need to um i think is, is super important and in terms of embedding that within your your upbringing and your your, your childhood was there any particular reason why looking back you think that those traits have emerged in terms of having to well, not, not having to, but and developing an ability to be a slightly different person in different environments and looking outside the box. Were there any examples that you can kind of think about on the spot? I think a big part of, say, my story of being of my childhood is like my parents being divorced when I was like 11. I think for me that um, meant that at the time I started blaming my mother. So at the beginning, I was like, you know, why are you ending this? Like not really understanding what's going on. And then throughout sort of 11 till, I don't know, 14, 15, I started to understand it more, empathize, listen, hear both sides of perspective, be able to sort of go around my dad's place, go around my mom's place, like have them as different places that I could attend. And then when I got to about, I don't know, 17, um, I decided to sort of live with my dad and move out with my mum's, and also then, at the same time, basically transport myself to school. So I just like cycle to school first and then eventually drive and I got a car. And for me, that meant that I became like super independent. And I basically have to like in my final year before I got my A-level results, I was pretty much taking myself to school, working on weekends, going in like 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Monday to Saturday, going on Sundays. And I think that journey of independence is a big part of it and something for me that meant that I had to really fit in with either the scenario of school, but also the scenario of like being a runner, an identity I took up at like 14, 15, uh, and got more and more serious at it. And then also fit into other groups as well. And I think for me, what's a really important part is that like, I have a genuine interest in other people. And like, if someone tells me something that's quite different and quite unique, I'm like, yeah, like, tell me all about it. I love getting people talking. So I think for me, it's like, the more diverse of experience that I can have in life, the more I can empathize to more people. And that has been like the bedrock of how I've been able to build this like multiple identities across other people that I meet as well. I love that fascination of people. I mean, that fascination of people with me is where the, the podcast kind of was born out of. And, I, and I've learned along this journey, just how different people can be. And you, well, if you're not exposed to that, if you kind of keep, sheltered and, and keep to what you're used to growing up and, and, and as you grow into an adult things can become quite a shock so obviously you're able to at relatively early age try and identify those things and really try and expose yourself to to those different environments um you mentioned there you you're a runner you assume the identity partly as a runner where, where did that come into to play and then what was that like kind of doing that on the side along alongside school and sick form and stuff yeah so went to a private school um which was pretty helpful i went 
actually sort of 11, 10, 11, I was at state school until that age. And then I actually asked my parents like, hey, look, can I go check out the prep school? Because I was sort of doing quite well in my classes. and was like, I want to be pushed. Um, so I went for an open day and on the open day, I was like tugging the parents arm, like, please, can I go here? Uh, and then eventually they were like, yeah, cool. So they took me to, um, to private school, like prep school, 11 till 13. And then you go senior private school from like um, 13 to 18. So that's kind of the context of where I was at. Um, and definitely brought with itself like a lot of like opportunities. And one of that was sport. They had a really innovative way of thinking about sports. So they included it in the curriculum. And what that meant is that you could, as a, what, 13, 14 year old, choose a sport that you wanted to do rather than being forced on you, as a lot of schools would do if they provided like sporting activities. And so you had this like three main sports each term, but you could also choose individual sessions as well. And so in third form or uh, year nine, I chose to do a bit of rowing uh, to begin with, like one of the new sports there and got into that, got pretty good. Uh, I was in like the A boat and then I managed to run into a wall in, in gym. I don't know why I did that. Uh, and so when you run into a wall, you sort of push your hand back and you can't really row as well. Um, so <laughs> I kind of got dropped from the A boat and decided, okay, this thing like running, I kind of was sort of good at it. I've done a few like, you know, back in the day house runs or um, a few sort of summer days, you know, when they go and do the sports day as well and thought I might as well give it a try, decided to sign up. And actually the school's running club is the oldest running club in the world um, called RSSH. So Royal Shooter School Hunt goes back to 1882, I think. And only recently they got recognized by the World Athletic Federation for that, which is pretty cool. Um, but while I was there, I was like, yeah, sounds good. I'll get involved. And so I attended these like Tuesday long runs and just kept getting better at it. But when I first joined, I was literally one of the worst ones there, kind of nearish the back and just kept turning up, kept getting better and better. And then by the time I was what, like 15, 16, I was starting to get into their like second to eight, which is like the top 16, I guess, of people in the club. And then by the time I got into uh, my final year at schools, so when I was 17, 18, I became vice captain of the club as well. So kind of one of the top eight there, uh, which is really, really good as well. So seeing that progression, seeing that like dedication for me was a big uh, sort of jumpstart in my mindset that I can do anything if only I put my mind to it. And I think that reflected really keenly on my exam results. So GCSE, I got like seven A's, two B's and a C in French. Uh, and then in AS, I got ACC. And then I was like, fuck this, I need to turn this around. I want to actually put effort into it in my final year. And so I really, I resat the the two Cs in the AS year as well. So I resat it all in the final year. I did about 14, 15 exams in my final year at school, hence the going in long hours. And I came out with A star AA. And I was like, okay, nice. Like that then give me the next confidence, take the next step and to take on the further and future challenges as well. So I'd say, taking up running gave me confidence in myself and then applying that to academics really showed me that I could do anything if only I put enough time into it. And now that's a very core belief that I have throughout my entire life. And that's why I think I can take on any challenge if merely I apply myself in the right way. And that time with regards to running is not short or medium term, is it? It takes years of building up your aerobic base and gradually progressing and pushing that, that upper capacity or what is known as like, you know, your, your aerobic threshold. And uh, it's, it's funny. I saw a post uh, of a guy, do you know, behavior hack on Instagram? Yeah. Guy with Zach. Uh, he did a, he did a recent podcast with a guy called Callum Johnson. And one of the things, one of the snippets I saw on Instagram was that it, to become, to get a million followers, he was saying, all you need to do is post once a day 
and gradually get better and then wait five years. <laughs> and it was just he obviously very crass, very, very blunt and to the point. But I think that speaks to the the importance of, of maybe doing the boring things and maybe doing, just iterating. And eventually that will kind of accumulate as like a snowball. And that's kind of what you've recognized as you were progressing into that then becoming a captain and i do yeah. find it funny how you had to caveat the c as a, as a french because that's exactly the same for me i have i have very similar gcses to, to what you listed there all a's and b's and then just yeah spanish c but <laughs> you know what I, you know it's a it's a good thing to have have you picked up language since then at all or, or have you just left it as a, as a c gcse so i did go to denmark for six months in my time at university so i did four years at loughborough and i chose that course i actually put it down as my only choice because for me i wanted to have the full like university experience and this one it offered you like a second half of your second year in a foreign country and then a third year on placement which at the time i didn't know but it became my first business and so i was like i can spend like a year and a half out of four years not at this university cool, let's do it. And so I ended up doing like a summer school my first year in China and then doing my second year, second half of it in Denmark, in Aarhus. And so I learned a bit of Danish. Ooh, I speak a little Danish in Danish, great. Uh, and then I also got into um, German last year, last year, year before, year before last, uh, where I took it up for basically a goal that I had was to go and learn a language. And so I had weekly sessions for like nine months uh, with a tutor and I bought like this lifetime pass to I think memorize and just decided to keep putting in 10 minutes a day that kind of mindset I can do anything I want to put my mind to and then it got nine months later and I was like why am I doing this again I'm not going to move to Germany anymore so I should probably end that one uh but yeah lots of fun and definitely learn a lot from it regardless I think I think language is one of those things which it, it perhaps unfairly but it just depends where you're born you know it's, there's a lot of emphasis of having english as a second language if you're not from england but if yeah. not it's, it's sort of seen as a token thing in in the you know or in the surrounding discussion about the, the future of work so that's why i kind of I thought it'd be be worth asking um and so yeah you, you mentioned you, you hit up loughborough after that time in in college or the later years of, of the school yeah um what did you go on to study and what was the initial kind of culture difference between the school and the university so did four years it was in international business and for me like that international context is pretty important so rather than just seeing business as just you know the uk how can we think about how it can expand beyond the market but also like the name was kind of like yeah it it fits yeah for me it's more of my reason for university was to understand how to build a business and how to scale it for myself as an entrepreneur, rather than to learn how these big corporates do great things or not so great things, uh, really. So for me, I was like, okay, I want the business skills, I want to meet people, and I want to go in there and experience everything else. I knew from the outset that the degree was the least important part of my time at university. And so I got involved in my first year in a society called Enactus, where you create social enterprises, so businesses for good. That's what we're all about, yeah? And it was really cool. Met awesome people there, got inspired by some people that really impacted my life. And I basically set up a project where we took textile waste and upcycled it into like clothing and pillows. And we helped people with disadvantage, like get skills in the process as well. So kind of cool. And alongside also went and presented that with our other projects at nationals where I stood in front of about a thousand people and presented it to an audience, a team of like five of us, and we got top five out of like the whole of the UK, which is our best result ever. 
and it felt pretty good and i was like again i can do anything yeah like here we go so it's that same mindset just reinforcing it with evidence each time and that one in particular reminded me of the importance of like business for good and so i got involved in the society by being on committee the following year and then went out to denmark and then started that first business in the third year afterwards as well what is evident obviously from what you've spoken about so far is the, the feedback loop and, and having the idea of hard work correlating to good results being reinforced. Yeah. Just purely thinking about someone who perhaps didn't have that from an early stage in their life, maybe a listener who, who struggles with this, what, what would your advice be to taking the action, even though you might not see the results in the short term? Just, I don't know if you've got any particular thoughts on, on that whole kind of mindset. Yeah, I'd say start with one where the outcome often is a direct consequence of the inputs. So sport is the best place to start. Yeah, like any sport you do that's particularly endurance based, hence why I kind of still do endurance sports is because it will teach you that persistence, dedication is more important than talent. And I think when you realize that you realize, okay, you know, you can study for ages and maybe like flunk a test, but if you practice day in day out and go out running like when it comes to a race you might not get your full potential because there's a bit of variable ability there but you'll get like better each time and you'll see it so i think pick a sport pick an activity where there's a direct correlation between putting in input of hours into results of an output as well and that will then build your confidence and you'll see that it's possible to apply it to other domains and of course there are other things more variables come in with more complexity so say if you've got something like public speaking that's got quite a few variabilities. That's got how well do you know your subject? It's got how well can you speak? How confident are you on stage? And how well did the actual performance go? So a lot more variables there to control. You can obviously improve all of them by just practicing it more. But I think the closest one to prove to yourself is sport before you do anything else. And I think the way that you described your initial perception of uni is is that the degree is obviously important, but not the most important thing is really powerful. And that's also a similar mindset that I've, I learned to adopt throughout the kind of second half of first year, maybe the beginning of second year. And just sort of realizing that the the main point of the degree is, well, it's not, not the case for everyone, for, I think, but I think for a lot of degrees, it's the transferable skills and the opportunities yeah. and the networks that the professors have and the the societies and clubs and the fantastic initiatives that are going on. And of course, as you're, as you've alluded to, that your entrepreneurial spirit kind of was able to step into that. What was it? An actus? Yeah. Is that so society? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so you've got all those kind of projects going on where free of the stress of being in the work environment where if you don't succeed with a product or if you don't push something all the way to the end that you'd have to, at the end of the day, pay the bills and... Yeah. and put food on the table university provides that space i think previous guest ben smith said that it's basically a, a time risk-free where you can well not risk-free but you you, you, can, you really can push the limits of trying and failing different things with the comfort and safety that you've got a student loan coming in yeah. and that you've got a place to stay and, and a degree that you've still got a couple of years of, of time on and so looking back what is the the one Thing that you think you you maximized that you took away the most from university that was aside from the degree with regards to those kind of side projects i know you touched on a couple of them but maybe unpack one in particular so maybe this is evidence of it at the end is i had this like 
two awards at the time I left university, one for like Loughborough uh, Enterprise Awards, the person that de dedicated and gave the most to like the enterprise network. And then I also got the Dean's Award for Enterprise as well. So I had both of them in my final year. And I was like, okay, that probably speaks to myself being involved in as much as I could throughout my time. So that meant in my first year, I got involved in like University Business Challenge. So again, like not really entrepreneurial, you're more kind of like, fill in tests and like do a few things at this event that you attend to enact us in second year, then going away, doing a summer school and then on entrepreneurship in China was a summer school. And then also doing my own business in third year and then starting another business in final year. Like there's quite a lot of elements there that were very entrepreneurial. And I think my theme here would be learning how to build and manage teams and communicate with people effectively. That's probably the number one skill I took away from university. And that was kind of my intention going into it is meet really cool people, learn how to work with them and learn how to be a leader, because that is something that can take you anywhere. If people can follow your vision and follow what you believe in, and you can really sell them where you're going, it's massive. And I think that's something that I'd recommend to anyone is to learn psychology, yes, but particularly learn how to lead and influence people. I think there's a, there's a number of books on that and not, not to plug any particular one. I mean, I haven't even read it yet, but to one that springs to mind that almost echoes what you said there is how to win friends and, and influence people. Have you have you read that yourself? Yeah, I think I read that in my first year. Yeah. Uni. Yeah, I've got like a whole, yeah. I used to have a bookshelf behind me, but I've got a whole like stack of books there. And probably about a third of them, half of them are on psychology. Yeah. So similar domain areas. I think the, there's such a different level between seeing self-development quotes online and, and actually reading books and meditating on specific chapters and actually trying to integrate it into our lifestyles rather than just being another tick box exercise of feeling like you're reading lots of books, um, which obviously you, you've clearly kind of have that feedback loop between reading the books and then seeing the success that the books have predicted i don't know if that makes sense but <laughs> you know what i mean like by, by following the steps in the books you've kind of been able to see and, and kind of connect those those ideas those ideas together yeah speaking as a what was it a multi-potentialite is that how you say it yeah that's um, how you say it yeah as you've come towards the end of your time at loughborough and transitioning yourself into the world of work you do a lot of speaking now on on the future of work where did you find your feet in terms of job applications and trying to transition out the other side? Because it's obviously very difficult. And I think people listening will appreciate that someone who has many interests and has more of a temperament that is more entrepreneurial, it can be quite hard to stay tied down to one thing or have, have stability with, with interests. So how was that process for you? Let's take us back to it's March time, 2020. Yeah, uh, that's my final year <laughs> at university. Right. I think we all know where this goes. And I was looking at my first business house hack and not oh, sorry, my first business posting. I was looking, I was like, okay, I've got this prototype. I can manufacture it and roll it out through a crowdfunding campaign. But do I want to do this? And I was like, mm, not really. I've kind of lost the connection to the idea and like what we're doing with it. But I've really enjoyed the people that I've met. And I still meet with the team like regularly every sort of like three months and still catch up. But I was like, oh, I need to close a business. So I closed that first business. And then obviously COVID came in, got a fucking pandemic came along. But my mindset at that time was, okay, I'm not going to apply for any jobs. I'm going to take the summer 
to just reflect, find out who I am, do some volunteering, read a lot of books and just chill for a bit because I've worked so hard throughout university on like, yes, a degree, but also these other entrepreneurial activities that take up so much time that I've not really like gave myself a lot of time to think about where I want to go, what's next. And then because I did that, lockdown came in, we had April, April 16th, I basically hosted this online event, which at the time was for students who wanted experience because they just had their summer internships cancelled. And for businesses that needed their problems solved through like thinking differently about COVID challenges. And I was like, okay, one plus two equals, you know, three. How do we bring them together? Host this online hackathon. And we had what nine participants, three businesses back on that first event. And both sides really loved it. And we're like, okay, cool. Let's keep doing more of this. And so we booked the next one in for four weeks later, did it again, more people, more teams, did it again, did it again. And we're like, okay, there's something in this. And so at the time, there was no like profit incentive. There's no like revenue coming in. We won't get charging for it. We we're just doing it because it was meaningful. And because for us, it was something which enabled students to get a great job um, and get experience, but also for startups to you know, really adapt to COVID. And we're like, okay, cool. We can keep building experience here. I was also working like part-time on a few other like freelancing gigs as well, um, which were paying me like absolutely fuck all to do. But I was like, it's good experience. It's fun. I'll enjoy it. And so I had like two or three uh side like freelancing i had this as my main project uh house hack and it evolved throughout that 2020 year into this i think i mentioned before this talent accelerator so what we had was this online event that was hosted where we had this young talent come along and they would solve real business problems we're like okay cool how do you monetize this we tried monetizing it by having the businesses pay us some money for it. Kind of worked, but it felt like to do more of it, we need bigger events. And that wasn't really the solution. So we looked at the talent who were really, really good because they'd spend their Saturday, eight hours of which on an event with us solving problems. Okay, that's probably going to be some pretty good talent to want to do that. And so we partnered with scale-ups, startups that are further along the line. And we hosted these same great days, but we had our students assess other students on their ability to solve problems in teams. And so rather than having an interview where, you know, every person's like, oh, I'm great. Like actually an assessment day virtually that people could attend, enjoy 8.9 out of 10 average rating, pretty good. And at the end of it, get a certificate, work on a real business problem, get genuine experience and maybe also get hired win 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 for everyone and for us it meant that we could monetize and because the recruitment industry you could charge like 10 15 of salary easily it meant that we could actually make a bit more money from it so we charged out uh obviously under market rate but we made a decent amount from it and so scaled that and also built alongside it a kind of consultancy part to what we do as well and i think we worked with about 50 60 startups in that sort of year and a half uh, of building that business obviously quite a lot of them on the free model of Kilometers event and we'll find loads of talent for you and you'll work together because you're an early stage startup and then a few of them on the kind of let's hire you talent specifically for this role and your needs side as well so we kind of had this community on the back end and we had this at first event to find talent that would come in join the community and then we put them in this other event to get matched into startups and for us that really evolved into like a great experience where um, we could help people but at the same time make a bit of money and also you know um work remotely so travel the uk as well <laughs> yeah I, I think what i really like about that is is you know maybe not everyone will be familiar with the term but if you have any experience of economics or any kind of psychological stuff like that kind of asymmetry of information between 
a buyer and a seller or in this instance there's an asymmetry of information in the job market where employees don't know who's out there who who's the best they have their own ways of employing people that or choosing people through selection processes which might not be as rigorous or as accurate or as desirable as it could be and you're basically reducing that gap by putting eyes on the best talent which is self ranked and sort of they, they kind of it's kind of filtered it's it's like shaking a i don't know when you're like making a cake or something and you're trying to get all the the biggest pieces of the mixture to the top you're shaking it so the 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 best people kind of rise to the top naturally through that yeah. process and it's obviously quite a I've, I've never come across that idea to me that's relatively novel but at a time when that was just everyone's wondering what to do in the summer of 2020 and out of that comes a really great way to to marry those two agents together and i think that's i think that a lot of people probably struggle with that when they're coming out of uni regardless of whether there's a pandemic or not is trying to see where their skill set and where their temperament matches up with a company with the ethics and with the purpose behind the company and the salary and also startups are notably known for struggling with finding people and, and like kind of social cohesion within the company and so it sounds super like a super great initiative to kind of pull that together. Um, just out of curiosity, what was the what was the process of trying to get in touch and, and build the network yourself when you're trying to ascertain the number of startups and the people to contact within the startups and the students? Like, how are you actually going about bringing these people together? Because, you know, I, I wouldn't know where to start with something like that. You know, obviously I, I have a network, maybe not the, the biggest network, not the smallest network, but trying to build something out of that. Is it just co- loads of cold DMs or what's the process? Okay, so there's a few things. Uh, firstly, the biggest one is I started writing on LinkedIn in about 2017 with that first business. I started recording each week, like what I was learning, reflecting on the journey. And so I had a bit of an audience through my LinkedIn, nothing massive, probably like three, 4K or something. Um, but the real answer is, Basically, LinkedIn search, DM the people that look pretty good. And if they're on LinkedIn, they're probably also going to be wanting to build their career in some way. So the student side, you'd find quite a lot of them. When it came to finding talent, specifically for startups, they'd ask me for like certain traits. And you'd be like, okay, great. And I remember myself and my um, my co-founder, like we'd sit like in evenings, smash out DMs to like these perfect people. We'd like build huge lists of them and just like, you copy paste, copy paste, like change the name each time, make it personal. And it just required a lot of like outreach at the beginning. You had to build momentum through people experiencing it. But we knew once they came in and touched one of our events, they'd have a great day. So we just had to get them over the line. I think the outbound cold DM was a big one. But another big one was partnering with the universities. So their careers department, they obviously want their students to get jobs. <laughs> so for us, our cell was like, hey, look, like we're going to have a great experience anyway, get you know, actual on-job experience with the project, but also maybe get a full-time role. And so they promote it for us. They promote either the free event, which was, you know, come along, get experience, or it was the sort of more paid event where you come along and get a full-time role. So it's the partnership with universities as well. Um, those two combined together with a big word of mouth. So everyone that came along to our events, we had this community of about evolved into 39 team leaders. And the beauty of what we built uh, was that, I wasn't attending our events. I could delegate the process of delivery. So I had this team um, on the back end, I built it through ClickUp, where 
effectively the team leaders could fill any role. The team leaders were the community of 39 and they would be a team leader of six on the day. Yes. They'd also be the host of the entire event. There's two hosts. And then there'd be an event manager who'd manage the four week process. So the getting the ideas out of the startups of what they're working on, but also then the day itself and the follow-up consulting calls that happen afterwards. So we have like those three roles, team leader, host, event manager. And that meant that I could step away entirely from delivery and focus on other activities as well. But also it meant that we could train this community in the skills of being a team leader, host, and um, event manager. And then they could help us become consultants afterwards. So I had this like three-dimensional model where you had participants, you had like, um, the startups and you have the team leaders and the team leaders at the same time are getting trained and developed and so they become our best talent so whenever we had the startups come along we'd be like yeah we'll find you some participants but also chuck in some team leaders because we know they're good and so you kind of build out the community in many ways and i'd say why we closed it at the end was a number of reasons one of them was the complexity of the model like you'd need so many different stakeholders coming in all the time and it just gets like a bit crazy to manage because you have to get the numbers right um, it's doable and it's fun and it probably speaks to my ability to, to manage many things. But at the time, yeah, you had to get the numbers pretty right and you had to rely a lot on people in your community delivering for you and being available. Students who were what full time <laughs> students working on weekends for you. Um, yeah, you had to rely on their availability, which meant you couldn't really run events in January or May, June. Um, so it also took out three months of the year. Uh, so there are a few downsides to it, but the beauty of it was working with awesome people and having them see that they can do things that they otherwise couldn't. So I'd ask them, hey, do you want to be a host the first time? They'd be like, I don't know if I can do that. I'd be like, yeah, you can. I'll put you on with another host that's really good and you'll feel that you can do it. Went on, did it. Oh, man, I learned so much. I feel like I can actually do this now. You want to be a event manager? Yeah, 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 I can do that. And then they take it on. You see their confidence build each time. And I think for me, that was the biggest thing here is that hey, each progressive step towards the next thing can show you that you can do the next step there afterwards as well. And I think that's the fundamentals of that business and what makes me like now excited about the community that I'm building with a more potentialized as well. It's, it, it's really interesting to hear how your brain sort of has that vision as a very like top level, but also then has to articulate all of the systems and then try and just trust that those systems are going to work and that people are going to communicate with each other in the right order and mm. but i think bringing that all together is obviously born out of the repeated projects that you've done in the past where you've potentially been in each of those similar sorts of roles in the past yeah. so you have an appreciation for each of those roles but then when you are overseeing it you're able to relate and also guide the direction and a lot of the time, at least from conversations I've had with with some of the, the top dogs in the ONS on, on the placement at the moment, is they spend their career obviously gradually scaling up, but it means they have an appreciation for what the people on the ground level are doing. Yeah. Whereas, you know, some people, if they go in as a, if they want to be a project manager their whole lives and then they just become a project manager out of uni, then they, you know, there's no... I think empathy on a, on a human to human level is really important in being able to coach someone through that role and, and best, best help their development. So, uh, yeah, obviously a, a great thing that you've done there and that transitions into, you know, with the multi potentialite is the, the project that you've kind of got going on now is what I see quite a lot of is the, is the mastery in your twenties. Where, where was that born out of and, and how's that going? <laughs> 
so that one was born out of a, again, I just set these goals each year. I kind of re- review them each quarter. And one of the goals that I had for 2021 uh, was to write a book. Wow, classic goal. And beneath that, what it meant practically was the habit was writing a thousand words each week. So I'd sit down every Sunday, I think it's 2020 actually, well, 21, and I basically write, um, yeah, a thousand words each Sunday. <laughs> like, however bad it is, however good it is, you just book in three, four hours of your diary and do it. And I was in like proper grind mode for those sort of like first five months of the year. And I was um, getting pretty far through, I think what, about 25,000, 30,000 words. And then I went traveling, it's a bit harder to do, but I started really well. And so I had this like half written book. And my theory at the time was basically the, the book was called How to Start. And my whole intention here was to help people understand that to start and build a business, you need to first work on yourself. And so the first half of the book was about self-mastery. And then the second half of the book was about like scaling a business. And so he wrote half the book, he wrote the half on the self-mastery part. And so he got to, okay, 2022 i was like ah, i've got this half written book sitting on my google drive i should probably hit publish on parts of it and what better way to do that than through a newsletter that was kind of growing popular at the time but i also wanted to build a list that was separate from uh, my linkedin audience to make sure that if i wanted to you know someday leave the platform i could and i found substack and substack's a great platform by the way would recommend they're awesome behind the scenes as well and basically turn this into okay if i've got this how to start each one is kind of a guide to each skill out there. And so I started with like writing each week, adapting from the book into a guide to self-mastery. And I worked on about 25 different skills, all from like love down to like self-discipline, down to like bravery, like quite things that you probably wouldn't describe as skills, more as traits. But because I believe you can do anything, you can adapt and adopt these traits as skills. And so I wrote about that for pretty much nine months last year. So from March till the end of the year, and then about sort of October time behind the scenes, I was thinking, okay, this, I can evolve a step further. And what is it that people really connect with in my writing? And I think a lot of people in their 20s, yes, I'd already call it master in your 20s, makes sense. Um, But for me, it was like this career path that I'm on, future of work piece that I'm really interested in that I do professionally, like how could it all mold together? Okay, it's that future of careers piece is the one that I'm going to play with. And so it kind of evolved over the end of last year. I wrote this like theory of mastery, which is kind of my calling back to point from like, here's how I think people can navigate themselves and the world around them. And it became hey, look, you being a multi-potentialite, you being someone with many interests, that's unique, that's a positive thing, and we should reinforce that. So for me, I became a community of multi-potentialites in their 20s now, and now I speak to it about how to navigate that career, how to think about mental models, how to add on top. You imagine these skills are like your baseline. The next level is like using them to shift around the world of work. And if anyone ever asks me, oh, how do I get better at this skill? I'm like, as an article there, read it. <laughs> and then I'm like, okay, how do I navigate my career? Article there, read it. And for me, it's a great way to have a resource bank to then maybe one day turn back into a book, but also then uh, have people refer back to at any time I need to advise people at a way that I can do at scale as well. So yeah, it's been a journey about a year into it now, 500 plus subscribers. And I'm just now rolling out the community side as well. So that first event in March is going to be really, really good. Fantastic. And when, when you were writing this, is it a, a kind of a, a combination between 
what you've experienced and learnt through just living and then failing and trialing and, and successes combined with what you're consuming online or is there a what what is the writing style like i'm just trying to get a sense of what you're actually conveying here because not that i'm going to write a book any day soon but i want to try and explore building a personal brand and doing more writing and and, and, and communicating things because i like seeing what i'm looking at online but then reinterpreting it and drawing on personal experiences and kind of building that whole picture where hopefully I'm adding a 0.1% of a novel idea into the world that can then help more people. And, and, and that's a whole snowball effect in itself. But where was the kind of inspiration and, and balance in, in the writing style for you? And mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know if that's a relevant question, but it's yeah, something yeah, I'm yeah, curious about. I think for me, the best books are nonfiction books that read like fiction. So they tell a story that's true. They tell it in such an engaging way that you're like, can't put the book down in the same way you can put down a great story. And I think there's one that I've got here called Napoleon the Great. I'm a bit biased and running into history anyway. But that book is basically about Napoleon Bonaparte's journey. And it's written as a perspective of him being like, why don't we call him the Great, as if you would Alexander the Great. And even though it's a biography, it reads like fiction. Yeah, this guy's story is crazy. And because the the author has that perspective of like greatness, he's adding in like pieces of like, okay, this is why he did this. This is my perspective on it. Like, and I think it reads really, really well. I remember like actually going through it. I couldn't put it down through an airport. I was just reading it as we're going through an airport on the flight through to Mexico. And I was like, okay, great. This is what I want to be able to convey. And so for me, that same like, here's some ideas that I've read, like read quite a few books now. I've got to the point where, dare I say, I walk into a Waterstones and I go to the nonfiction section. I'm like, I probably read about half of these books um, on the sort of front side, um, which feels pretty good, but also means that I can kind of synthesize ideas because a lot of them start saying the same shit once you get further into it. And so it's about how do you draw out the most important ideas and put them in front of people. And for me, those guys were a way of doing that, a way of turning those ideas into actionable statements. So every time I'd write it, I'd write it as a way of someone could take this guide and actually implement in their life. But also I provide further resources, further reading. And I also add on that bit of spice of like, it's not just how to X, Y, Z, boring to read. It's that analogy. And I'd say in my writing, that's something that I've evolved into is writing a lot of analogies. And I've got pretty known for doing that as well. And I think even now it's transitioned to more of those sort of like career pieces. I'd say it still has that anything that comes into my mind i love drawing analogies i love surfing the sea of uncertainty yeah like those kind of words when you play them together it becomes not just a visualization in your head but the alliteration is really nice as well i think that becomes something that you can only really hone and work out your style by just repeating the process and i got to a point now a year later where i'd say i know what i'm good at and where i can write but it's not something that i've like i could code into something i could teach someone it's more of a I'll sit down and write it and it will flow a lot more easily than it used to. And that's just through iteration, isn't it? That's just from posting on LinkedIn every day and writing a thousand words every weekend for yeah. those different time periods that you've been, you've been doing that and have done that. Um, one of the, one of the things that I want to pick out on is your use of analogies, because I think storytelling, which is essentially what analogies are, is trying to embed archetypes into conversation where they don't previously exist yeah. are so intrinsic in like human nature and the way we conceptualize 
the world around us, right? I think it it's funny because I think I was speaking to a friend about this many months ago, but we're talking about how like in a company, if you're trying to articulate a certain problem that you've got going on with the code or a certain work problem and, and you the other person doesn't understand of what that complicated issue is, if you can sort of just abstract that and just tell a little story about it and, and use an analogy that will get them to the other side and get them to understand the problem, then you can kind of just get the complexity of existence just out the way and just dumb it down through someone being able to almost like feel it. And yeah. so that's what you're looking for in writing, isn't it? Is, is to generate feeling and connection because even though what you're talking about and your own experiences, as you've said, each experience is unique and you kind of aggregate those lessons across the books and, and draw them out. It's the same when someone is 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 reading one of your posts or one of the, the bits of information that you're sharing. When they see that, they might not exactly know what the post is for them in their own lives, but they can go, well, actually, I've been Eeyore or I've been Tigger or I've been this character they see on Marvel or, or whatever yeah. and I don't know that, that you can sort of see in yourself in those characters and I think and I just wanted to dwell on that point because I think it's it's so fascinating that despite all of the advancements in AI and how logical and technical things are getting we still resort back to good guys and bad guys and very basic moral stories to try and articulate and, and, and make mm-hmm. sense of life which uh, obviously you're you're doing yeah um, yeah yeah i'd say the key word there is relatability so i think you touched on it but the word is relatability of like i can see myself in this person i can feel this thing because i've also done that activity the analogy you're using is something that i can visualize very easily so it's their ability to relate to and i think the simpler the words you use and the simpler the analogies they are that's something that applies to more people obviously you want to be specific to your niche so here at Modern Potentialites, whenever I use the analogies, I try and think of them and their situation. So someone with many interests is probably going to feel paralyzed by having so many things on at once. They don't know who they are. And so it's that kind of point of like, take the analogy, make it understandable and relatable, but make it relatable to your audience in particular. And then it's something that you can quite easily, people can understand and think that this is for them. He's writing for me. Okay, cool. I see a lot of that on copywriting 101 is right for one person not many people because it it means that that one person is going to feel going to feel heard off the back of these projects that you've had and and the entrepreneurial endeavors you got into obviously consulting yourself as well then trying to because you've had experience in many projects at university that then have grown into businesses and you've made decisions to stop at certain points and, and restart new ones you obviously have an appreciation for the general structures of like the way that that startups are built and the way that businesses scale. Yeah. So what has your work been like when it's not your project, it's not your idea, but you're offering your services and being able to identify those things within businesses? What what was the what was the idea behind like wanting to go and do that and then what's that been like? So we'll take us back to November 2021. I've just been through like October time and I'm like, okay, I've just delivered this project, a employee value proposition for a client where through the previous business, I was like, okay, this basically is articulating how we can appeal a a role to a Gen Z audience effectively um, through understanding what their needs are, what they want from work and the sort of training and development plan that they need. I delivered that by myself through the business and I was like, okay, like there's a need here. 
And this is something that I really enjoyed, big passion, but also it got to the point where those kind of confluence of factors came together for that business to close of like, we're getting more in person. These events that are, are remote are harder to sell to an audience of getting them on board. Also myself, and my co-founder, like looking at that skill set match for scale, quite difficult. Um, and also then looking at like the many risk variables. So like I said, there's like one, two, three groups at least times by many more that have to come to take this journey with us with that second business. And so I decided then that I needed to close it. And in that moment, I had probably cash until end of December to pay myself. And I was like, okay, what's next? Yeah, I kind of live like this right now. It's like, okay, I've kind of got cash now till end of April. Great. Like, what does that mean? It means I have to go search for the next project. It's a good pressure to have. Yeah. And something that I actively look to build into my life. And at the time, my first time really embracing that since leaving that second business. And so I spoke to many different people in a week, like probably four, five, six uh, different people. And I kind of came to them and said, hey, look, like I need help looking at my next project. And one of them said, get involved in project management with us because I've seen your skill set. I've worked with you. He's been one of my clients in the previous business. And he's like, I know how good you are at it. Come and do it for um, like this four month project and sort of see you find your feet and then evolve from there. And that's what I did for four months um, from November 21 till like um, March time 22. And for me, that was like, okay, I know I'm good at this. I know I have a skill set in operations. How do I then apply my kind of interest, passion in future of work? And so we tried to start to think about starting a business on the side, start a few other projects, like, and then it all kind of came back together full circle to in the summer, think about how I could, yes, do business coaching. So I tried that as well and quite enjoyed it. So having the ability to help one person realize that they can scale themselves and use my skills from the previous business of scaling people uh, to help them do the same. And then alongside, it was like that future of work passion. I'm not just helping them scale businesses and helping them redesign organizations. Okay, cool. Like I've got closer to this purpose that I have. I've realigned to it. And I'd say now having gone through that sort of next stage of moving back home, having time to reflect introspection and now coming back to London, I'm like very clear on the impact I want to have on the world. And for me, that ability to empower individuals to create organizations of the future being my purpose, I'd say it doesn't necessarily matter how I get there. And there's like a sort of 10, 15 year horizon on this. And in my head, I'm seeing it as something where if I try and help someone with organizational design, if I go to a big corporate, yeah, imagine me going to like a Deloitte and saying, hey, you guys should change the way that you're doing your organizational structure because it doesn't work for everyone, which is really the big, the big cause, yeah? These symptoms of like EVPs, employee value compositions or uh, equivalent, they're more, yeah, they're down here. They're like symptoms, but we're gonna go upstream. To go upstream, we need to solve the organizational problems. And reading the books recently, Brave New Work, uh, Reinvent Organizations and a few others have got me like, yeah, this is it. This is what we, this is the problem. This is how we solve it. And I think it's also helped me zoom out and see the bigger picture and realize that maybe I need to do a master's for two years part-time. Maybe I need to work a full-time job. Maybe I need to do a few other areas to get that quote experience and accreditation where I can then go and solve a big client's problems where a 1% difference is massive. Yeah. A 1% difference helps a hundred thousands of people rather than right now, like coaching one agency and how to scale. Yeah, it's cool. It's great fun, but also the impact is a lot smaller. So for me, the question is how to scale impact and scaling impact now means doing a few things. It means continuing what's working, networking, community, personal branding, the like, but also thinking about how I can get 
deeper into the research, deeper into being a thought leader in the space and someone that knows through what I've learned how to express that. And I'd say I'm getting there. I've got quite a few things lined up this month, but it's a process, it's a journey and something to enjoy as well. Definitely. And I think you're kind of building that identity capital as you're trying to grow that platform and posting online and, and as you've mentioned there, building the personal brand. But alongside purely just identity capital from networking, there does also need to be, I guess, objective, concrete substance where a big business, as you're saying, when you're trying to take on like these bigger projects, they don't just look for how well networked you are and, and some of the projects you've been doing. They want clear, transferable experience in a more traditional format, which... Yeah perhaps is also as as well as signaling to the bigger businesses it is also necessary because it's in a more i don't know it's more akin to, to perhaps what they'd be familiar with yeah. um so it's interesting that you kind of need to do both of those things i think is it's something i was speaking about uh, a few weeks ago is how you need to have the and I, I don't want to like <laughs> it's basically the, the the perception of performance so like what something looks like from the outside needs to look good as well as the substance being good and you can't really have one or the other because if you don't have you don't have the substance and the concrete sort of like traditional experience then obviously you're going to fall flat on your face as soon as you approach the problem but also if you're all on on the perceived performance end and it's all on the surface level then when someone does approach you it will, again it will kind of fall flat on its face so mm. i think it's a it's an interesting sort of like balance to strike from like personal branding and also then like qualifications and and masters and doctorates and whatever people actually have as a sort of behind the scenes stamp of approval, I guess, from the, from the traditional systems. Yeah, I think um, it depends a lot on what you're talking about and the skill set yeah. here. So if we take a prime example, yeah, TikTok. To become a TikTok expert, you're not going to get a degree. That doesn't help you. Become a TikTok expert, you go and do the thing. And you're probably, by being young, people think you are more of an expert than if you're older. Me coming into the space of organizational design, <laughs> these guys, they, they've been leading businesses the last 30 years, yeah? Why would they listen to this 24-year-old who knows nothing in their eyes? And so it's a quite a different space. And I think this is the appreciation you need, is that speaking to something where everyone has an opinion, like organizational design, is quite a lot harder than something where there's an expert who's a young person because they're young because they know digital technology more than I do. And you have that privilege of like, Hey, I should just let them go and do it and they can charge a lot for it, but they're really good at it. So it's cool. And I don't really mind. Um, but when it comes to, Hey, let me change your organization and let's rethink about authority and how you delegate roles and who gets compensation and where, um, that requires a lot of trust, you know, how do I, how do I give you that? And I think that trust level is the key question here. How much trust do you need? from the individual to work with them on the problem that you're facing. And for me, the trust level is like basically max capped. Yeah, like it's top end. You need to trust me a lot for you to listen to how I can help shape your organization. And so it's how do I build that trust quickly? It's like, yes, these things probably take two years, three years sales cycles. And I'm kind of appreciating that now. Um, and so along the way, how do I continue building expertise in the area, build domain knowledge, and then also make little impacts that build into bigger projects? So when you mentioned there, you know, the, the, the level of trust for varying projects when it comes to, you know, TikTok marketing, for example, is a new generation coming through that perhaps don't need the traditional education system. It's actually, and I don't know how much I'm allowed to say, uh, cause it's an ongoing internal pro, uh, project 
project in the MS. But one of my colleagues is is redoing a, a method of of how we categorize statistics, right? And one of the things that we're doing now is and uh, it wasn't traditionally needed to be captured, like new streaming services and Netflix and Amazon Prime are being categorized as like cassette streaming or something because there isn't a category for them in the national statistics of, of whatever subsection industry and sector level. And so there's these new regulations that are coming out called COICOP 18, which is like a all national statistics bodies need to conform to this thing where they're all sort of on the same page and categorizing them similarly. And it's just funny that that's having to be a thing. And you look at the data and it literally goes from almost nothing only 10 years ago, whereas pretty much everything else like mining and land and everything just has like decades and decades of previous data. And it, it really demonstrated to me this morning on a, on a presentation, I was just looking at it like, you can clearly see that it's a very, very recent thing. And clearly people that have been in the game for longer than this just have no idea, well, they don't have no idea, but they have less of an idea than people like yourself who are kind of coming into the world of work as things are taking off, not only with with novel and new uh, actual sectors and like businesses, but also the way that businesses are communicating and the way that the direction of ethics and flexible working and all of these things which are rapidly taking off in the last 10 to 15 years as we have this rise in technology and i don't know you probably put post-materialism into the thing you know people are looking at at the fact that the purpose and fulfillment over just purely the, the monetary aspect w one of the things i really wanted to briefly pick up on is the way that you said that you and i you might have seen me typing a little bit earlier off the back of one of the points is that you actively build discomfort into your life or or, or did actively build discomfort you know you've given yourself a, a timeline because it it speaks to like the the pressure required sometimes to force yourself into making a decision i mean i just mentioned post-materialism but one of the huge problems we have now is people get too comfortable because the world is is in at least in the west we're all very privileged and that we born and we grow up and most of us have food on the table and and food to eat and stuff and so keeping yourself with somewhat of a level of discomfort and a time pressure and things like that has clearly allowed you to don't know come up with ideas more spontaneously or be forced to work things out right you know the, whatever the law is that that work will take the time you give it um, parkinson's law i think um is there ever a feeling like a on a psychological sort of from a psychological perspective like is there a feeling of like where that risk becomes too much and you worry for the uncertainty compared to the career path that you could have gone down, which would have been, which could have been more stable and less volatile. Because um, obviously, you know, that does, people listening to this are probably going to think that there's, a, there's, there's all these choices that we have between going a traditional route and sticking the safe option or, you know, sticking the neck out on the line and trying to do something a bit more special, but has more, more consequence if it doesn't go, doesn't go yeah. well. So what's, what's that like for you? So there's probably a few factors here, a few mental models coming in. The first one is that you never know the alternative to the choice you make. So for me, that's a really strong belief. It's like, just decide something, yeah? Like, you would never know the alternative. Don't contemplate what if. Spend more time thinking on what could be and just go after it and really see what's possible. Other part of this is that your 20s are for learning, your 30s are for earning. That's my viewpoint on it. Like, I could earn absolute jack shit, get paid minimum wage for the next six years still until I'm 30 and I wouldn't care. 
And for me, I'm not looking to build wealth. I'm not looking to make loads of money from this. I'm looking to do things that I genuinely enjoy that have impact in the world. And so for me, I'd rather sooner take on a more risky project or almost not be able to pay myself at the end of next month because it means that I can keep doing those projects. And I think it's a prioritization thing. Like, don't tell me that you want to make an impact in the world when really you want to save for deposit for a house and make some money. Like, yeah, cool. If you want to do that, do that. Yeah, like that's fine. But you can't have it all. And I think a big part of this is knowing where your priorities are and knowing what you're giving up and accepting that. For me, I'm accepting that like, okay, I'm not going to save that much each month because I'm just kind of like only paying myself enough to do sport, but also kind of live in London and actually, you know, have a bit of a life, but not much more than that. And so that's okay. Yeah. Like that's where I'm at. And I'm at the opportunity of learning like six more years of this. And then maybe when I get kids, it'll probably change, but like understanding who you are and knowing it and being able to play offense on it is a huge part of this. And I think the less you care about the opinions of others and the more time you give to yourself and introspection to being out on that bike for four hours. Yeah. That's enough time to think about what's the problems I have in my head, how I'm going to solve them. But also for me, taking on that risk enables me to feel alive. Yeah. Like, that's that's being alive, like not knowing what's going to happen. That's exciting, yeah. It's the certainty of life, which is often pretty unfulfilling and pretty pretty dangerous, I'd say. So when you don't know what's happening and you actually trust yourself, like I said throughout this podcast, I've built that trust in my ability to solve problems. I know that I can go about it in any way, taking action here and building the networks, trusting that I've met enough people and that I have an idea of the grind, so I can still put out emails, LinkedIn notifications, I can do whatever I need to do to build enough opportunities to solve the problem. I think it's one thing to know where you're at. So I have a pipeline, I have a forecast, I have numbers, I can see the problem in front of me, but another thing to know how to solve it. And I also know how to reach out to people, how to ask, what to ask for, how to make a bit of money, how to sell. And I think once you have those two elements, you also then trust yourself even more to solve it as well. So a few things, the right mental model, the right skills, and also the right understanding of the current situation, all three of them are necessary before you can take the kind of risk that I'm taking on a daily basis right now. And that's all just through kind of tying it right back to the beginning is just just iterating and, and doing that in multiple dimensions in your life. And then you get to the point, as you say, where you, you, you build the trust and reputation internally. And I yeah. think I mean, right now with the podcast, I could have I could have planned out everything on my notes. I could have written down every question and just read it out word for word, planned everything, orchestrated it. But that would that would be no fun. And you know, we'd end the podcast. We might get some good content, and yeah, fantastic. But there's no room for novel ideas and no room for a conversation which has the potential to be spontaneous and exciting. And in leaving myself with barely any notes. I'm just I'm I'm having to trust myself as and as my ability as a host, which hopefully is gradually getting better. But I know it's still a, a developing process of you know trying to understand what you're saying and trying to articulate it back and 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 fire some some questions that will hopefully drive the conversation and some value for the listeners. And you know it's it's all about that gradually building that up, and it's not an overnight process. And you've demonstrated that through being involved in so many different entrepreneurial endeavors throughout the last sort of like i mean i suppose decade if you take it all the way back to the selling suites on the other side of the, yeah. the campus but all, all the way through i like the way you you very briefly touched on it there it's quite a nice segue into the how alongside all of this you've kind of transitioned from running if you can remember back in, to earlier in the podcast and you've gone onto the onto the iron man 
the triathlon you mentioned there you know the the four hours that you give yourself space and and time to think things through not necessarily plugged in or that or that i don't know if you sometimes listen to music on the bike but how how has how has triathlon training played a role in sort of like grounding you throughout the changing environment from week to week month to month in terms of your your personal projects Mm, so I'd say it's it's an interesting start of this. So I call myself now, yes, I take on the identity of being a triathlete. Of course, I do triathlons. It makes sense. But the bigger picture here is I'm an endurance athlete. That's the way I see it. And so for me, when I transition from doing running into triathlon, it's like another adventure at a different endurance challenge. I think that's really important to see is like zoom out see the bigger picture of who you are and you can realize that you can do many things and you can expand your identity. And for me, taking on that new triathlon sport, I, yeah, I've done a bit of swimming when I was younger, cool, never really cycled properly, great. And so I signed up for a club, got involved and I saw my my cycling get better and better and better, improve each, basically every month I turn up. Um, my running was already pretty good, but got better as well. I'm now hitting PBs this year that I didn't get when I was just running, which is pretty crazy. So I'm the fittest I've ever been right now, which of course enables the confidence in your body, confidence in your movement, confidence in yourself. But also for me, it's that time doing something where the input equals the output, like I mentioned at the start, where I know that if everything else in life, and I see life as many pillars, so I have this like running or like triathlon, endurance sport pillar, I have this meditation, daily meditation pillar, I have this sort of like socialization, um, keeping up with friends, it's like feeling involved in community pillar i've got this sort of like work pillar or probably three work pillars um there there and there and for me like if one of them falls down so if something on i don't know i haven't been around friends enough okay great like the other pillars are going to keep this up yeah they're going to be able to maintain this optimism this energy this fuel for life and of course i want to try and pick the pillar back up where i can but because there's enough there it's sort of supporting the acropolis in itself you see it's like a greek temple and for me like the sport is a big one that gives me that space that freedom that flexibility and that time to really process who i am where i am and what i'm doing and sometimes yeah i might go and sit in the gym do a hard bike session i'll put earphones in and just grind it out but if i'm out on a run no earphones in we just go and do it and enjoy it um, but if you're out on a cycle, sometimes you overlap it with socializing. So you can do four hour cycle with some friends and do two things at once. Great. And other times as well, like you're in race mode, you're competing, you're feeling like, oh, I can push myself and see what's possible. Like I did last Sunday and actually realize, oh, wow, I'm fitter than I thought I was. So I'd say I would not be the same person if I did not do sport. And it's a huge part of my identity lasts what like 10 years beyond now yeah um so i definitely say it should be the same for i mean i think a lot of people should have at least an activity but i think sport's a great one because it's social it's going to challenge you and it's going to keep you fit like why wouldn't you do a sport um and i think without it i would not be who i am where i am or confident in where i'm going and i think it just gives that excitement for life of like you know i could Everything else could fuck up, but you know, my sport and my fitness, that's going to be good because I'm going to turn up each day and do it. It's definitely something that I felt when lockdown hit. You get everything swept away, but you could still go out and ride my bike. And it was it was super nice to to just cling on to that and be like, well, regardless of what's happening in my personal life, I could be at university, I could be unemployed, I could be embarking on a career as a psychologist, you know, I could be on wards every day and have limited time to try and squeeze things around but I'm going to try and just keep it as a constant 
and keep improving in whatever dimension I have. Again, a, a previous guest, an actual a, a cycling coach, mentioned to me that he's, he's recognised that he can't train to the same level as previously now and that he's got a family, but he's still making improvements, lifetime PBs in the gym. Like wherever yeah. we can apply ourselves, and I, I mean, you, you'd obviously relate to this with the running. He said, you know, it takes many, many hours of cycling to see small increments, but when he could, when, we, when he was time restricted, when his daughter was just born, he switched to running and doing three or four 45 minute runs a week was enough training stimulus to see some level of progression, which, you know, as a new time dad, he was saying that's incredible to still see some metric of improvement and, and, and progression and also having, again, an outlet where you can spend 45 minutes out processing and de-stressing or maybe not if it's a super hard VO2 max session, but you, you know, it's, it's obviously that, that outlet that, that, that people can have. Well, um, just to briefly touch on it, what are your sort of goals for, for the year with, with, with training and Ironman? Yeah. So for some context, last year I'd in August, 2020 had signed up for the uh, Ironman UK full distance in 2020. 2022 so 2021 august signed up for 2022 and i got to about may i'd done like the whole winter training was pretty fit i'd self-trained coached myself uh into the new sports and gone to a pretty good point and then went out to mallorca with the triathlon club here had a great first few days and then got to the top of this big climb uh Sacalobra, and down the end there's like a three switchback with many switchbacks but this one in my head did first switchback, second switchback, third one, I was going 65 kilometers an hour. Don't go that fast down switchbacks unless you know what you're doing. And I managed to sort of hit the brakes, but I was on a carbon bike for the first time. So I've been training on what's behind me, which is an aluminium bike, very heavy all winter. And I was like, wow, I'm so fit. I can I can ride fast now. And down there, I hit the brakes. Um, it had been raining that day a little bit. And so basically the brakes didn't really work as well started skidding and I was like I either hit the tarmac here or I go into the crash barrier ended up going to the crash barrier went over the edge and there's a 10 foot drop into a ravine below and I hit this rock and so you can see on my little finger here um this one was broken and I also got some scars down my arms which are a good reminder not to do that again um but basically I had to defer the Ironman UK to the following year being this year 2023 and I was like, okay, that relief you have, but I did it, it was crazy, man. Like hitting the button to defer, I was like, oh, like I built the whole like last 10 months to do this. And I said no to things because I was prioritizing training. And now I had to defer it and do it again for another year. But actually I reframed it as what you're doing, Charlie, is accepting another year of training. You can get better, you can get faster. And you're most scared of having to do it all over again. Go and do that thing because it scares you rather than just crossing a finish line and maybe just make it to the end because you probably get enough fitness back. Like, no, I'd rather do it properly. And so I deferred it and also signed up for a half Ironman at the end in September 2022. And at that race, I managed to qualify for world champs for the following year. So this year now in 2023, my main two races are Ironman UK in July and Ironman 70.3 World Champs in uh, August as well. So that's my main two races, but I've also got loads of running races, shorter triathlons, sportifs, and the rest of it, um, which kind of starts about now, um, where we start racing again. And last Sunday was my sort of half marathon that I managed to PB over 
when I was doing 130k running before, I got a PB on it on 71.14. And then on Sunday, I do 55k running now. And I managed to get 69.55. And I was like, whoa, bro, like this training, we're doing it right, um, which feels pretty good. So yeah, I'd say I'm at a good point now. And it's the same week that I managed to bench press my own body weight as well. So I was like, okay, I'm fit strength wise. And I'm also fit like endurance wise. What more could you want? Um, so yeah, feel like all the world right now, which is cool. I don't want this to be a whole whole fitness discussion, but I do find it interesting that off the back of less running mileage, because you're able to do far more cardio on the bike than you could running. You know, even elite runners, you know, the Kipchogis and the Mo Farahs of the world, they'll never really push past like 12 hours or 14 hours of training a week. Yeah. You know, they'll top out about 100, maybe 120 mile weeks. Whereas cyclists easily do double than that because there's, there's no impact. And yeah. so you can sort of top up whatever running training with with two or three hours of zone one, zone two cycling, which I think is just it's just an interesting observation because I don't know if there's any runners listening to this, then supplement your training with cycling and, and you'll knock, knock uh, two minutes off your half half marathon time. Um, so yeah, I, I want to, whilst, whilst we've still got a little bit of time here, I just want to briefly touch on your outlook on, on the future of work. I mean, probably left less time than, than I'd anticipated for it, but that, that's the, that's the normal conversation. Um, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm not, not unhappy that we've talked about it. I think we've talked about some, some fantastic stuff in the meantime. Um, very simple, very straight to the point from your perception, what are the biggest, uh, challenges moving forward for young people and generally the world of work and what are you trying to do to resolve that as like a general points? Yeah. So I've got this diagram in my head, which I'm going to try and explain visually to you, where there's almost three circles, yeah? This is how I see our future of careers developing, which I think plays a big part in the rest of the working world. You've got the circle of the identity, the who, which is us living as multi-potentialites. So I believe pretty much all of us are, if in our real form, multi-potentialites. So people who with many interests that do many things, that's a multi-potentialite. You've got the who, you've got the what, which is portfolio work. So earning via many sources of income. So working more than one job, i.e. doing two part-time jobs or having a full-time business and working on the side or whatever combination of income streams you want to make up, that's portfolio work. And then in the middle, you've got a squiggly career. So rather than previously, we've embraced this idea of like progression comes by working up a company or working up job roles in the more modern context by going junior, senior, manager, and then whatever comes afterwards in that role. Now it's about embracing the unknown and knowing that, hey, the world of work is changing so fast. AI is coming in. The rest of the factors are impacting what it means to have a job and the job titles are becoming so new that actually the squiggly career that you're on, you need to embrace the unknown pathway ahead of you. And if that means going back to do a master's for a while, entering a full-time job or changing what you are currently doing to support that, then you should embrace it. And so you've got, in summary, the multi-potentialites, the who, you've got the portfolio work, which is the what, and in the middle, you've got the squiggly career, which is the where. And I think those three things together are the essence of a knowledge worker in 2020 or 2020s, 2020s, 2030s. So that's where I see the world of work as a career going. And on the flip side, the organization needs to adapt to this, yeah? How they see roles currently, someone being 40 hours a week full-time, ain't going to cut it yet. We need to think differently about how people engage with work, how they 
take on different projects at the same time, how they can be employed by multiple companies, but how they can also think through project-based working rather than through you know, business as usual working as well. And so what I see is basically half of the world becoming portfolio careerists by the next 20 years. And I think there's a lot of infrastructure needs to go in place to do that um, and a lot of factors that will enable it. But that I think is what gives individuals the independence to negotiate on their terms and to live a life aligned with who they are and explore all their many interests. But it also gives the organizations the best way to hire the best talent, to move them into different projects at the same time, to think about how they are driven by a purpose, not by being paid at the end of each month and working on projects that are really cool that interest both the party, but also the organization itself as well. So in amongst that, because I, I think in theory, that sounds fantastic. And obviously that's something that you'd you'd want to facilitate for others and be able to pursue yourself in, in some meaningful way. But the idea of a an hourly wage being put on how much one hour of your time is worth in monetary value is kind of inescapable with regards to surviving. I know obviously in, in, a, in the capitalist system that we kind of have built the the western structure on how how does that come into play with scaling back work hours and trying to look at purpose over salary and i don't know like i see, I see very many competing maybe not competing interests maybe they are they can be tangential but i'm just looking at what you're saying and it, and it's it sounds fantastic in theory but i obviously have no idea of what the practicality is because i'm not in that space and i yeah. admittedly i'm obviously quite naive with regards to that so could you maybe kind of yeah, yeah. So the, calm my my nerves <laughs> with, with this whole future of work? So I think the first principle you drew on there was being paid per hour. And for this like ideal case is not being paid per hour. It's getting paid for the outcomes that you deliver. And it's thinking about how you measure that. That's a huge question. Yeah, that's something that needs solving. I haven't got the answer for today. But how do you measure people's contribution to projects and to outcomes of business? So right now, if you are a even as a as a kind of freelancer or as a solopreneur, if I sell you a project, I'm not going to sell you how many hours it takes me to deliver it. I'm going to sell you the value that I deliver for you. So a similar thing here is even when you're buying a product off a shelf, you're not buying it because it costs X amount plus 30%, you're buying it because of the perceived value that it has for you. And so it's moving to value-based pricing, value-based employment, and thinking about how we can, in a way, understand what makes everyone unique. That's the personal branding piece in this, but also have a way of pitching ourselves, selling ourselves based on the contribution we'll make to the larger picture rather than just being about, hey, I'm worth this much for my time. No, I am worth a percentage of the impact of this project. And so thinking percentages rather than time hourly rates. How do you see that scaling up onto a, as this grows in traction, you know, obviously it works for a few individuals and a few companies and then maybe more individuals, more companies. But when it comes to hiring processes and the fact that most people are going to look to try and get jobs, but not everyone is going to rise to the top of those, you know, competitive, similar to the house hack idea when people would like self-rank themselves. It's going to be difficult for some people to try and find their footing. And, you know, amongst the masses where people may be getting different, paid different things based on each individual value that they're bringing. I don't know if you've put much thought into like how, I mean, I'm sure you have <laughs> uh, into how it will like scale up 
in, in the future because it's something I'm just I'm just interested in yeah. personally as well. I think this is the government society picture plays a part in this as well. And they're kind of, if I picture this as an idealist a little bit without taking my pragmatist hat off too far, the idea that I've got in my head is building out the universal basic income element of this as well. So taking the tax on the AI, taxing on the machine automation that we use every day in businesses that businesses don't really own. You can't really own AI. So how can we all benefit from a AI as such? And how can we then reinvest that money into giving people back freedom and time and ability to own their own expenses, to be able to buy the bare necessities where work becomes more of something they do out of joy, out of wanting to make an impact rather than being out of merely having to do it as well. And I think another element in here, which again, we're going a bit more politics here, is the idea of degrowth. So not focusing businesses on expanding each year, and instead thinking about which ones do we grow and why, rather than expansion at all costs. So a lot of businesses are built around the idea of input money, you grow, it's worth more later, I'll sell and I'll make money because you know venture capital good. Not really a sustainable model, especially when you grow the world's economy 3% each year and the resources on the planet are finite. The question here is how can we instead use that in a more effective way and how can we think differently about how we measure human happiness rather than this random gdp number that means nothing and so if i'm thinking more politically i'd say ubi plus degrowth as a goal is a huge part of the picture that solves it for the masses rather than just for the individuals that make the most of the system I've got greta ringing in my ear when she says you know how dare you know the the fairy tales of uh was it infinite growth yeah. And I think I think it's true and it's not I don't think it's something that people really consider the fact that in a long term when you're looking at the macro shifts over the decades and and centuries of the fact we've had an industrial revolution and all this kind of inflation and the pressure on a finite planet at the end of the day there is going to be that shift between the way that we leverage AI and I really like the way that you've described how we'd leverage AI in terms of taxing it and providing universal universal basic income which is a fascinating idea and something that Obviously, as a post-material society where we live in comfort we and there's going to be less jobs that we can do, <laughs> we need some way of then bartering for goods and services. And I think that's yeah. that's obviously the way to do it. And you can play a, a significant role potentially if, you know, on the, on the path that you're doing, hopefully, to try and raise those conversations and to try and begin to tackle some of these systemic issues of, of how businesses are set up and as you've mentioned several times, I think you've said business as usual and trying to, to challenge that narrative of, you know, it's always been done this way. I've been working in this role for 30 years. Who's this young man trying to come along and, and tell me something different? But <laughs> clearly you've you've got the the entrepreneurial lens on and you've got the, the vision as to where this is going and hopefully trying to, to intervene there. Yeah. What does the what does the present and future look like for, for you with regards to to projects and what you, you hope to achieve obviously scaling up the master in your 20s but is there and obviously the triathlons as well but <laughs> as a more 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 general point that you could sort of like leave leave the end of the podcast with maybe i'll i'll kind of shift this question a little bit and i'll think about how the impact on the world here so for me like what's in my head before i kind of go into personal projects is like the time on this is running out yeah like i know when you read climate impact you think 
oh, it's almost scary. Yeah? There's people that get like obsessed on the idea that there's fear in this and we're probably all going to die soon and it's going to be horrible. Like, I kind of want to bring a bit of that to the world of work. Yeah, like sticking in a job you hate and having a situation where most people are going to continue doing something that they kind of maybe are sort of disengaged with. 79% of people are disengaged at work, yeah? 79, four-fifths of your team are actively not enjoying what they do. Like, that's crazy, yeah? Like, if we keep that up, what what wonder will that do as the world, yeah? Like, how will we lose our joy? How will we lose what drives us? How will we lose what gives us happiness in the world? And I think there's this whole climate issue, yes, but there's this whole, like, purpose issue of being a fucking human being. And for me, like, if we don't solve that, we lose ourselves in this idea of capitalism and this idea of money at all costs and growth at all costs, when actually it's not about that, man. It's about living and enjoying life. And I think for me, when that comes to the personal projects here, like, yeah, I can tell you some goals for it. Like, of course, I want to grow the number of people involved in Mastery of 20s. I want to have a bigger impact. Yeah, yeah. But also, like, I want to get better at doing my things get get better at writing get better at like being a better person but also get better at the experience that i have and by virtue these other measurements should probably come in like if i'm better writer probably more people will read it if i'm more experienced as a future of work consultant probably more people would work with me so i think how i've sort of evolved my goals here i would have if you asked me a year ago give you the kind of the clear-cut examples that you're probably asking for but now i sort of visualize it as I need to continue on the journey, the path that I'm already on. I need to keep double downing on this area and become even better as a person so I can make a bigger impact on the world by virtue rather than through the aim itself. And so I'd say a lot of the work is internal and to get there just requires whichever path will come up, whichever path will be the most obvious at the time. I can't tell you which one it will be. It might be a master's, it might be working full time, it might be uh, running these mobile projects, working with a few different clients, building case studies and scaling. I don't know the exact right answer here, but I know that I'm on a path that's aligned to me. And for me, whenever I am here versus a year ago, two years ago, I might have had this sort of situation of unknown about, about a year ago, year and a half ago. And I'd actually be like a bit more suffocated by it because I wouldn't know which one to decide. But now because I understand where I'm going a bit more clearly, I can say yes, say no to things and not feel too much resentment or too much distance from the alternative option that I choose as well. So yeah, a bit of a long-winded answer to your very simple question, but hopefully that gives you a bit more context. And I think it's important that we reflect on the underpinning philosophies and the general conversations and the, and the direction of things. And I think what you've clearly illustrated there is sorting yourself out first for lack of a better expression you know really trying to do the internal work introspection self-development trying to make sure that you're well-rounded but that you have your niche and your speciality to to provide value and give you purpose and feel like you're useful for other people because i think that's a lot of what purpose is really is feeling yeah. like feeling like we're useful and feeling like people value us because we have something unique to offer and i think you're sort of honing that in and then regardless of what happens in the next number of years so long as you're doing that week in week out work on the bike training as well that's developing not only in the physicality but also your mind and your learning things and it's just ticking those boxes and iterating and, and just meaning that when opportunities present themselves you've already been doing the groundwork yeah as a product of your lifestyle and your your kind of outlook all the way up so that when those big opportunities perhaps arise random as they are you know when when luck you know th there's the phrase when luck is just when preparation meets opportunity and so yeah. 
I think that's pretty much what you're trying to embody. Not that you're trying to get lucky, but you know what I mean? Like you're just trying to converge towards a, a better future and being a, a better human being. Yeah, I like first. that. Nice. So, so yeah, I think super, super admirable goal and certainly something that I'm going to be enjoying listening back to this and clipping things up and, and, and obviously can't wait to share it with everyone. I hope it's been a, a good listen, Charlie. I hope you've enjoyed and um, thank you for thank you for your time today. I think it's been fantastic insight into not only what who you are, but also your kind of commentary on on the future of the world of work and that whole kind of space, which is uh, is really interesting. Me, so thanks. For yeah, your time. yeah. Thank you, Zach. I feel like I've downloaded my brain here and given it to you in ninety minutes. So appreciate it. <laughs> thanks. <laughs>